Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, yeah, it's really awesome to be here with you. We're going to be continuing in the book of 1 Samuel. So open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 11. I would really love just starting in verse 1 as we're kind of walking through this story. We're just going to invite God to not only teach us how to read it, but to read it onto us and help us live in light of that story. So open up to 1 Samuel 11. And I'm just going to ask God that, God, you would make these words that I'm going to share far more meaningful and powerful for every person in this room than ever could be my giftings. Um, God, you know I'm an empty plastic cup, so fill it up that it might overflow and that everybody here who is trying their best to just live out one more week in light of Jesus might do so in power. Thank you, God. Amen. Um, I, I had originally planned to... I had, a, I had another introduction written this morning because I had a year that pretty much everything in my life has been defined by the premature birth of my son. But I've told those stories like 10 times over at Tempe, so I was like, not going to do another intro about my son. Um, even though you guys probably haven't heard any of that stuff yet. But then as I was driving up uh, this morning, uh, it just kind of had not expected the effects that the seasons coming and going of the year and even how the passing of time can bring up memories again and even old traumatic moments in your life. And as I was driving up this morning, I drove past for the first time realizing uh, the first time I'd been back up, back up to Flagstaff since one year ago exactly to the date. And the last time I drove up the I-17 highway, I was exiting the Mountain Air Kachina exit, which is where my mom lives. And that weekend, without really knowing, my wife's water had broke prematurely for our firstborn son at 22 weeks and five days. We had gone into Flagstaff, got a cup of coffee. She was acting very weird, but we didn't know. And so we drove back down to Flagstaff after going on a light hike. And uh, if you know anything about pregnancy, all bad things. <laughs> so we get down into uh, the valley, and this Sunday that morning, a year ago that date, we wake up, my wife begins bleeding, we rush to the hospital, and it's there that we spend the next six weeks praying and fighting and hoping that our son, Asher, would make it. And yeah, so driving back up here has been a weird experience for me. And this day carries a lot of just bizarre memories to me. And on the one end, it's very, very triumphant. My son is okay. And I get to be up here in that sense of celebration. But on the other end, it brings up a lot of memories, namely what it was like today hearing that it was very likely that my son would die. And to hear that from a doctor it was the first time in my life that I had a threat, like a real threat, a threat of my wife losing her life, a threat of my firstborn son not being able to live. And it was probably the first time within my life that I could not either fight against it or run away from it, if that makes sense. Every other kind of like 
enemy, if you want to call it, or threat that I had experienced in my life, I could either avoid or I could fight against or I could do something in my own strength. This was the first time in my life that I felt absolutely hopeless and helpless before an enemy that I could not fight and I could not run from. So what do you do when you face an enemy, an enemy threat that you cannot run from and you cannot fight against? In 1 Samuel 11, the enemy here is the raiding army of the Ammonites. You see, look in verse 1 with me. Check this out. It says, The Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. So Nahash and the Ammonite army is this army of raiders, and they come in and they attack the Jabadites, and they surround them. They surround the city, and in a last-ditch effort, they withdraw into the city, hoping that one of two things are going to happen. Either the army is going to realize it's too costly to invade that city, or they're going to run out of food and eventually give up and go away. But it becomes very clear, we get the details, that they can't do anything. Nahash, who, by you, has the name literally serpent in Hebrew. Like the exact same word out of Genesis 3. So you know from the get-go, this person is not good news. So the serpent leader of the Ammonites is threatening the people of Israel, namely the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And they realize there's nothing that they can do. It's utterly hopeless. That might sound really bad. But to be honest, I actually think it's a little bit worse for us today. Because in the Old Testament, hear me, the enemies of God's people are defined very specifically as the nations, the political empires, who would stand against God's people, the Israelites. But in the New Testament we get a redefinition of who the enemy is. In the New Testament, we hear Paul describe in Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's bad news for them, but our enemy is invisible. Our enemy is more sinister far more pervasive. You might not have had an experience where you are trapped by a literal army trying to attack and destroy you, and you might even honestly have never had an experience yet in life, like I've had where there's a threat of life or death, but every single one of us has had the pressure put on them from Satan, sin, death, a threat from the enemy that you cannot either run from or fight against. What do you do? What do you do when the complex cultural powers of our world create this kind of like gnawing feeling of isolation and loneliness? And then you begin to hear over and over and over again the lie that probably nobody would notice if you just died tomorrow. What, what do you do? What do you do when you come from a family that has so much generational brokenness in fatherhood, that you have a kid and immediately you're repeating the same patterns of bitterness, short-temperedness, anger, and impatience that your dad did to you and you hated. What do you do when the demonic powers of our age work so hard, like so hard, 
to normalize and celebrate individuality and personal freedom that you actually begin to entertain leaving your wife as an option for happiness? What about when you're fighting against your own patterns of sin so hard that, to be honest, it's better if you just lay down and give up under the weight of sexual addiction rather than try to fight against it? What do you, what do, you do when the threat is so powerful and pervasive, you can't run, and maybe you've tried to fight, but you know you can't win? So what do you do? The first thing you can do is try to give up which is essentially what they do. It's submission. So they invade, and the people of Jabesh say to Nahash, make a treaty with us, and we'll serve you. Right in verse 1. Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. They are agreeing to servitude of their enemy. Why? For survival. It's a lot better than getting invaded and destroyed. So they think, okay, probably the best bet that we can make at this point is to agree to give up, and then we'll live as slaves, but at least we'll be alive. The first thing that they try to do is just to give in to the threat. They recognize that they have no power to do anything. And so here you have, sadly and ironically, a story of the people of God really been rescued out of slavery from the Egyptians, have a long history of God always defending his people, they're now agreeing and offering up the chance to be slaves again just so they can survive another day. My question is, why didn't they cry out to God? You, you, don't, you don't see anything there at that point of them just crying out to God in that moment for help. They just, first gut flinch, let's give up. Why? How could Israel actually get to that point? I'm wondering as I'm going through this story. Well, maybe at this point, they aren't so confident that God will rescue because they have a long history of crying out to God. He saves them, and then they just go right back into their patterns of sin. Maybe they're thinking, honestly, God might be tired of us. Maybe we've run out of the rescue tickets at this point. Let's just do our best to make do with the situation that we have at hand. And so we don't see them crying out at first. My question is, why don't you cry out? Why are you at this point to fight in your own strength, in big ways or in small ways? Do you believe that God's just sick of rescuing? You've asked for help too many times. Maybe he's just kind of getting tired of it. There was a, a story in this book called The Body Keeps the Score that really caught my attention that I was thinking about this last week. And if you've ever read the book before, it is a psychotherapist who's just reflecting on different things that he has encountered in psychotherapy, dealing with trauma, post-traumatic stress, particular. And he recounted the story of this woman who had struggled with obesity her whole life. We'll call her Susanna. I forget her name. And what he began to do is follow her journey and help counsel her. She got into a program that did this radical form of fasting and coaching, and she was able to drop tons of weights that was able to like immediately from the doctor's perspective prolong her life be a lot healthier for her she felt better felt healthier and then this doctor is writing the book followed up with her in about six to nine months and had found out since that program had put on all of the weight again within a measure of a few months so he begins to ask why and they begin to dig deeper and they begin to find out that her problem had nothing to do with eating 
Her problem was that she had been regularly abused as a child and assaulted sexually, and because of that, has internalized this defense mechanism of, I will make sure that I am as unattractive as possible in order to survive. So here is this person who, sadly, heartbreakingly, is again and again giving themselves into patterns that they know aren't healthy for them, know are going to hurt them, but to be honest, are just the best case scenario at this point for survival. Why did Israel offer up in slavery? Because it's that or die, they think. We have no hope. So as a matter of survival— we all often will turn to situations and behaviors that we know aren't actually going to help us. We know our disobedience. We know that God does not desire for us, but in that moment, we'll believe a lie that this is the best case scenario that I got, to be honest. It might be in big ways. Often it's in just like small little nuances of I'm completely overwhelmed as a new mother, so maybe I will just do my best to just have a couple extra glasses of wine and watch something to just completely disassociate from reality in this moment. Maybe it's just a small, I've been doing really good for a while, and I've been behaving, and and you know what? Honestly, I'm a little too overwhelmed, so maybe I'll just, I'm just going to give in to pornography again for a little bit. Because... I just need something to survive in this moment. What do you do? Where in your life are you considering just giving in as a matter of survival right now? The really nasty thing, though, about this story is what happens when Israel tries to give in. They think this is, this is the best bet we got. But then when they offer themselves, look in the ne- very next line, make a tree with us and we will serve you. What does Nahash say? What does serpent man say? He says, on this condition, I'll make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. They didn't know that Nahash's goal was not servitude or even victory. It was the shaming of all the people of God. That's what he was after. So they think this will be the best thing we can to survive. And he responds, what I'm actually after is not just to beat you. And then he says, I'll do it if you gouge out. I let you gouge out every single right eye of all of your people. And there's some kind of history as to like, you gouge out every right eye of a fighter in the army and then they can't fight anymore, they can't take aim. But we get very clearly in here that Nahash's goal is not a political military move. It is to shame the people of God. That's what he wants. He wants to bring disgrace. And obviously he is so sure of his victory at this point that he allows them to send for help. In verse 3, the elders of Jabesh say to him, okay, give us seven days at least, respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. And then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers of Gibeah, of Saul, like the messengers get there, they report it in the matter of the ears of the people, and all the people just weep. They think it's hopeless too. Nahash knows Israel's not going to unite. Ahash knows that seven days is barely enough to get a messenger there and back, much less actually do anything to help them. He's going to get exactly what he wants. It doesn't matter anyway, so go ahead, give a shot, throw it out there, send for help. You're not going to get it anyways. Where does it feel like that in your life? 
Like you tried to give up. You gave yourself up to, to the enemy or to the threat in such a way. And then the only thing that got given back was shame. And maybe you're at this point right now where it's not like the weeping and wailing of the Israelites in defeat and in loss, but just spiritually right now, it's more like this attitude of numbness. Like I'm so burnt that I can't feel anything spiritually anymore. What do you do? Here's into this motion of passion that actually brings about rescue for God's people. We often associate something that is uh, a negative thing, but anger is often that driving emotion that brings about change in any way. It drives him from this place of paralyzation that the people have to actually doing something. So my next question is, what do you do when you're surrounded by an enemy that you cannot fight and cannot run from? That's the wrong question. You can't do anything at that position. The better question is, what do you need? When you're there, what do you need? What they needed in that moment was a spirit-empowered king that would be angry enough to do something. Do you ever identify with God's anger? I'm not talking about the anger that often you quickly associate with what he feels about your sin and what you've done. I'm talking about, do you ever associate or identify with God's anger for what has ever happened to you. I, I, it's been this last season, I've had a handful of these conversations where someone will come to my office, they'll sit down, and they'll begin to recount something that has happened to them horrible in their childhood, assaulted, taken advantage of. And then I ask them what they think that God feels about this, and they have a hard time really connecting anything other than this, like, distant God who can't really be bothered, and maybe someone in their childhood or in their adulthood has thrown out those pithy Christianism band-aids of, like, God's gonna work together all things for good. True, but, like, used in this way that it just kind of like makes God seem like he's far away and he cannot be emotionally bothered. Do you identify with God's anger? In the sense that we have an angry God and that's a good thing. He burns in fury when he sees what has been done to you in your past. He is greatly kindled with passion and fury and anger at the way that person left you in the dark and hurt you. In, in so much in so ways that when we, get to, when we get to Jesus and we see him living out God in the flesh, we get these moments like the story of Lazarus where he sees Lazarus who has died. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead. And there's that beautiful passage where it says Jesus wept. But it's not like he just sits down and cries. It's like this burning, fuming, snorting, like a, like a war horse sound that Jesus has that death would ever invade his world. The anger of God that gets brought on by the Spirit is actually a beautiful thing when we realize that God has anger for any that would hurt his people. If my son ever came to me and told me about like a bully or something that had happened to him, my reaction would never be to be emotionally distant. And it would never be like, hey son, this is going to work together to make you be a stronger boy. The first reaction I would have would be anger because I love him and I will do anything to protect him. So the question when you get to these moments is not what do you do? You can't do anything. It's what do you need? And what you need, you need a spirit-empowered king. 
You need a king whose heart can be moved in anger to act and actually do something. So we see in this story, this spirit-empowered king is moved to anger to act. So, no, no surprise, all of Israel hears Saul's basically veiled threat. They unify as one people, and then they go out 330,000 people to act. So they all come together. And as they're coming together, they, in verse 9, you see, they say to the messengers who had come, go back and tell the messengers, uh, say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messenger came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. So then these men, they shout back over the wall at Nahash and the army, and they say, hey, tomorrow we'll give ourselves in. And then they wait through the night. And I can't imagine that that has got to be a very comfortable night to wait through. You're told that salvation is going to come. But the army that you're looking at, it's still right there. Like the threat is right there. What do you do when you have a threat that's still in front of your face? But then you hear this message of salvation for them in Israel in this army, but for us in the power of Jesus. A lot of our Christian lives are going to be waiting in the middle of the night. And the temptation is, as it was for them, I'd imagine, you can look at the army out there and say, honestly, we, bet, we better just hedge our bets and go out and surrender now. What if the enemy gets more angry? What if they don't show up? What if we look like a fool? And honestly, why would we even get our hopes up? That's just going to make it even more painful when rescue might not come. So they wait on the night, they tell the messengers, and then they stay put through the night. Waiting on salvation has got to be one of the most painful and uncomfortable experiences that a human can have. You're either going to have it in these small ways where you ask God to intervene in your life, either for a deliverance in the moment from sin or brokenness or something done to you or healing or renewal, or you're still struggling with just the ugliness of the world that we live in and you're waiting on God to act and you're praying and you're in the night waiting to see him answer. That part of time is painful. It's uncomfortable and it really makes you wonder if you believe or not. But it's something that comes before salvation always. Sometimes you get the prayers answered, right? And you get to celebrate. And like the men of Jabesh Gilead, you get to see the victory come. But sometimes for a lot of us, that victory, the final victory, it might not come until the other side of the grave. So all of the Christian life, in some sense, is like waiting in the middle of the night like this. But how we wait and what we put our trust in in the meantime and what we do is going to make all the difference on what will it look like when salvation finally and fully comes. In, I think, like 2006 in Chile, there was a, a mine, and it completely collapsed in. And there was about 33 men who were trapped down in there, and they had about the rations of equivalent of two days. Rescue and the first contact, not even rescue, but the first sign of contact that they got and heard from anybody was 17 days later. 17 days. I don't know when the flashlights ran out, but at some point between those two days, it was completely dark. 
So you got 33 men who are trapped in this mine, and they begin to hear the drills trying to come and find them. But I mean, at what point do you start to go, it's hopeless? Is it day five? Is it day 15? What if along that way, 17 days, they finally hear hope is coming and rescue is coming? 17 days. What if at day 15, they begin to go, honestly, do we want to starve to death? We're going to die. Or should we just begin to take our own lives? Like, it's coming. We're going to die. We haven't, they're not going to get us. Like, what if that began to be the attitude that they took as they were waiting in that moment? Could you imagine the atrocity if the miners found them on 17 days? They make contact and find they're all dead. How did they get there? Well, interestingly enough, there was a man named Jose who is 52 years old, who is also a preacher. So he had, had to have a day job of being a miner too. He began to organize regular daily prayers and worship sessions down in the black of the night. And they began to sing and worship. And all the miners would describe those moments as serene calmness and peace and hope. And that was able to extend their time to where they finally heard from hope. In 17 days, they heard, you're going to make it. And they began to send down supplies while they waited to dig them out. So what do you do when you're waiting in the black of night? You might not have that intense of an experience at this moment, or you might actually be in a moment in your life where it feels just like that. Either way, if you're a Christian, you are going to be waiting on salvation fully and finally. The sad thing is the salvation was right there. They were drilling down for these men. They were going to save them. The thing that makes a difference is the perspective on whether you believe or not it's actually coming. Think about Nahash. Nahash threatens to invade them. But the biggest thing that he has in that moment is the threat and to get them to believe the lie that there is no hope. Hear it again. The serpent man, his only means of actually getting them to give in and submit to shame is the lie that they as the people of God have no hope. The only way that the enemy can have power on you, on you guys, is to get you to believe the lie that Jesus has not already brought salvation. That it's not already available. You might be in that time and period where you're waiting in the middle of the night and it might be really uncomfortable and you might be really mad at God and it might be really taking a long time to see him show up and it might feel like you've never seen him do anything, but the victory is already complete. They had King Saul on his way with 330,000 men. And we hear in the story, the moment that they get up in the morning, the victory is so sure and so complete that there isn't a single Ammonite man who's left with another Ammonite man. They're scattered and destroyed. The only thing that the enemy had was a threat and a lie. That's the only thing that the enemy has today. A threat and getting you to believe a lie. So in the end, they wait out the night. They don't give in to the enemy. The victory is complete. And then we see that understandably so, celebration happens. And in verse 12, the people said to Samuel, hey, who is it that said, Saul shall not reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. A little bit extreme, but they are really excited about this victory that the king brought. And so they miss it. 
they miss the point. This isn't a political victory. This isn't something that is, that is really going to be about the king anyways. This is a moment where the Spirit of God empowers a man who then can go fight on behalf of the people of God and bring salvation. So, of course, Saul has this beautiful moment of clarity where he responds to them and he says, not a man shall be put to death this day for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This isn't about me, Saul says. This is about Yahweh, your God, and he has brought about salvation through the spirit-empowered king. What a beautiful story. You can read this story, though, to be honest, and kind of be left thinking, at least I did. Man, kind of must have been nice, to be honest. Like, they had a real enemy threat in front of them, and then they had a real king show up on their doorstep and then fight and so defeat and slaughter the enemies before their eyes that then no longer Israel didn't have to worry about the, Al- the Ammonites from that point, the Jabesh Gileadites. They didn't have to worry about the Ammonites because they watched the king and his armies destroy the enemy. So I could sit here and tell you the power of Jesus, but then there's kind of like the response where you could be like, ah, Jake, honestly, man, it seems like it might actually be a little bit better to have someone physically present here with me fighting my battles. That sounds kind of nice. I want to tell you that Jesus is better than Saul. That this story is not about a reminiscing about a time where Israel used to have a really good king. And that Jesus is far better of a moment for his people and satisfies rescue than Saul ever would. But then you got to answer the question with another question of like, well then how is Jesus actually better? There are many days where it might not feel like it. There are many days where the salvation offered by Jesus might be, seem a little bit farther out of our access. But think about the whole story. This isn't the end of the story for Israel either. In fact, it's kind of a weird story as you keep going in 1 Samuel. The first parts, which I'm sure you guys have walked through, talk about Saul as this king that's kind of like, oh, man, he's all over the place. He's lost his donkeys. He doesn't know where he's going. And then he's afraid to be the king. And then you get this moment where he is so victorious. And the very next moment, he fails, and his whole life is this spiral out of control. And then Samuel tells the story of King David, which is like, wow, oh my gosh, a better king. And then he spirals out of control. How does the book of Samuel end? It ends with David's continual failures. And so what you realize is that as they're writing this story, even back then to Israel, the point is not to be like, gosh, look how good Saul is. The point is for them to be like, hey, notice that God empowers a king to rescue his people. What if we had a better king even than Saul? What if we had a better king than David? In that sense, it is leading us in to longing for a king that is empowered to anger, to act, to rescue, but they need to be better than the human kings that they have throughout all of human history. Saul was moved to anger to rescue, and so he took oxen and slaughtered them to threaten the people to unite. But what if there was a king who would allow himself to be slaughtered, to unite his fear, but under the love of his blood? The Spirit of God rushed on Saul for like a moment. But what if there was so unified with the power of the Holy Spirit that not only did he act in the Holy Spirit, but that when he finished his victory, he then just gave away the Spirit to all of you? What if, you know, Saul rescues the people from an enemy that threatens the people for one moment in history, right? 
But Jesus rescues us from death, from Satan, from sin, from the effects of them. Even if you lose or get defeated in the moment, there is no final victory that Satan, sin, or death can have on the people of God ever again. Saul's got nothing on Jesus. He's just a prototype that's making us long for that king. Saul rescued the people from losing an eye. Jesus rescued us from losing our whole lives. Saul was one king, a man able to be present with the people for a few moments in history. Jesus is the king that gives his presence to his people throughout all history forever. Every single time two of us gather together, he promises he'll be right there. How do you respond? They finish the story by celebrating and inaugurating the king. And they worship God and they give sacrifices. They, they realize we need to remind ourselves in history of what God has done. But what if it just doesn't feel like it today? I'm not really sensing the victory of Jesus. It doesn't seem like he's a more present king. Well, think about Nahash the serpent. Again, he's got nothing but lies. So what do you do? Same thing that the church has been doing for thousands of years. We get together. Why? Not to be entertained, not to be inspired, but to be reminded of the victory of Jesus. If you have forgotten it today, preach to yourself or have somebody preach to you. If you have a friend next to you and they have forgotten the victory of Jesus, preach that good news to them. We do it together. We need to be reminded of the truth. That is how we respond. So let's begin to respond first, like you guys always do, by praying. And you can pray. I'll go ahead and invite you to, you can bow your heads, you can close your eyes, you can do whatever posture feels good for you for prayer. And I want to pray first, God, that you would make this word take root in your people. In, in such a way, Jesus, that you would be a more present and powerful king than Saul ever was. And I want to invite all of you as you are here to spend these next moments in reflection and prayer. Maybe ask, where have I been just giving in? Maybe ask, God, where am I completely being run over by the enemy and lies? What lies do I need to confess? What lies do I need you to heal me from? Maybe spend a few moments of just reflecting on what this word might have. And then lastly, when you get up to worship and singing and take communion, rem be reminded that when we take communion together as the people of God, we do it to be reminded of the presence of Jesus as the true king of his people. So I'm just going to leave you guys now in this next moment, a few minutes, just to pray, to be still, to be quiet, to reflect on these stories. And I ask that God would speak to you even now in this moment.